Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. There are a few things more frustrating in the contemporary Western, for to the contemporary Western mind than the idea that there is one true God, one explanation for everything, one authority over everything, and just one. Perhaps the only thing more frustrating than that is the assertion that this God is the God of the Bible. But there is nothing more hope-giving and important for the Christian to grasp than this, that God is the explanation for everything, the authority over everything. Because if this is true, then so is everything else he's promised to those who trust his word by faith. And this is what God's people in Isaiah's day really, really needed to grasp, that God was God and his word was true. Well, this is the second in a five-week series through the book of Isaiah, titled A Vision of Two Cities. Isaiah begins his book with a vision of a city that is faithless and in ruins, Jerusalem, an unfaithful city, reflecting the priorities and loves and trusts of this world. But the book ends with a new Jerusalem on the other side, a radiant, beautiful, faithful city in righteousness. And the question of the book is how the city on the first side of the book becomes the city at the end. The contrast is ultimately between the faith in mankind and faith in God and the outcomes of those. And one city is not singing when it's all over and the other one is. The context of this book is obscure, but it is accessible. Maybe not after one read all the time and maybe not after 10 reads, but it is incredibly accessible. We will begin by reading the first eight verses of chapter 13, which will give us something of a taste for chapters 13 through 27. Isaiah 13, 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. On a bare hill raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains. As of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony, agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. You ever get in your car and you turn it on and the radio is full blast? Imagine you can't turn it off and you can't get out. That's sort of like what this section is. It's about 15 chapters of that. Almost all that loud judgment doom. Here God announces judgment on Babylon. It goes on for another chapter or so. 
And then he does the same for Philistia and then for Moab and then Damascus and then Egypt. That's the first round. And there's another round of five, judgments. These ones are a little more cryptic. Against the wilderness of the sea, against Duma, Arabia, against the Valley of Vision and Tyre. Folks, I was so excited to preach Isaiah until I came to chapter 13 and kept reading and kept reading and kept reading. Honestly, it reminds me of Fangorn Forest in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Remember Fangorn Forest? What is gnarly and confusing and scary a forest there could be. Shadowy, disorienting, and intimidating. Maybe if you read ahead this week, that's how you felt in reading Isaiah 13 through 27. Maybe you felt biblically illiterate. I'm not saying you're biblically literate. I'm saying this is not the place to test whether or not you know your Bible well. Here's what one commentator said to comfort you. At first sight, this stretch of Isaiah's prophecy can appear quite uninviting for the contemporary preacher. The issues seem to belong to history long past. Some of the meanings are opaque, if not obscure. Much of the material uh, can appear to be unremittingly doom-laden. It is hardly surprising that most contemporary Christians will never have heard a sermon from this part of Isaiah's book. And at least that's true for me. And for a good reason, it's obscure. Now, the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, if they were full of familiar language, lines that we sing about at Christmas, that the New Testament quotes time and again to interpret the coming and the work of Jesus, this section is quite different. It seems like no man's land, like a wilderness, like Fangorn's forest in a way. You can stop reading your Bible or turn somewhere else. I have to figure out what to say to you once I've committed to a series. <laughs> the fix, though, is in finding the path, finding the path to hear what God is saying in any passage. We need to find the path he has placed through the passage. Some passages appear to be saying one thing and they may preach well and we get them absolutely wrong. A passage like this forces the careful work of cracking the nut, finding the path through it. Have you ever been walking through a forest and you're disoriented, confused, and not sure if you're headed away from where you're supposed to go or toward where you're supposed to go, but you know there's a path somewhere. You could be 15 feet away, and if the path is running like this, you can't see it. All you see are trees. But the second you step on the path, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you can see your way forward and back. You know where you're at, you know where you're going, you can relax, and you can enjoy the power and the might and the beauty of the forest. And so we must do that with the Bible. Find the path. Then we'll know where we're at and where we're going. Most importantly, we'll be able to truly drink and take it in. The path through this section comes into focus in part when we discover why, why all of these chapters are here. Why are they here? Well, it's not addressed to the nations a word of judgment about them. It's addressed to God's people with a word of judgment on the nations. That should be a hint. Why might that matter for God's people? Well, maybe because they're surrounded by huge, intimidating, life-threatening nations that they're tempted to fear and to trust. So why then is this section here? Here's why it's here. It's here to answer a hugely important question for God's people of all time. Where is security found? Where is security found? 
Israel and her king have failed to trust God. God promised Assyria. God promised that Assyria would not touch them if they trusted the Lord. And Ahaz, as we learned last week, threw in with Assyria, only to mean that they were crushed under Assyria and then Assyria was judged. That was not the right way. God was too risky for King Ahaz. They need hope. And God promised that their decimation would not be total, that there would be survivors, that a king would sit on David's throne and that a new day would come, a new Jerusalem would flower and they would sing forever. That kind of promise sure sounds great, but could they believe it? Could they afford to believe it? With Assyria's war machine to the east and Babylon rising and Egypt to the south, Israel a small nation. The city of the world laughs at the thought of trusting God's word against these odds and human threats. The city of the new Jerusalem, which includes us, banks eternity on crazy promises that make no sense, humanly speaking. Chapters 13 through 27 that are very, very important. They are intended to convince the heart of the people of God in the face of great human opposition that God is indeed the Lord of the world and the Lord of history. The nations that are addressed here and judged span as far as the known world from the east to the west. We don't need to know everything about each of the nations and we don't understand all of the history here to get the point. From the east to the west, God is the Lord of history. You can trust his promises. Where is security found? That question will be our path this morning. We'll make four stops along the way. Don't worry, we're not stopping at all 10 nations. We're making four stops to evaluate four different answers to the question, where is security found? Four different objects of our trust and of our fear and of our hope. We need today the same unshakable confidence that Isaiah's original readers and hearers needed because we are tempted to trust the very same species of worldly strength here. There's more here for us than uh, I thought at first and maybe you thought at first too. May God grant it to us to hear his word this morning. Where is security found? How about Babylon the self-exalted? Chapter 13, Babylon the self-exalted. We've read part of it already. Is security here? Well, a whole bunch of security is with Babylon. Babylon is to be feared. The center of culture and civilization in the Mesopotamian Valley and the entire ancient Near East. Babylon was not a superpower at the time of Isaiah's ministry, but Babylon was growing in power. And part of Isaiah's audience is a future generation that will be exiled to Babylon and will be tempted to be crushed in her spirit without hope under Babylon's threat and rule. And yet God has promised that it would not last forever, that there would be survivors. Would she believe him? Remember, the main thing about Babylon is the main thing God hates. In a word, pride. Pride is what Babylon's roots are made of. Remember the story of Tower of Babel where all humanity came together when they were supposed to fill the earth with God's glory. They came together to build a giant tower into the sky to make a name for themselves. Take the place of God. Which means however secure Babylon may be for a time, it will not last 
and it won't end well. God calls them his proudly exalting exalting ones. He says, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. As we read through this, listen to what is making God mad about Babylon and it's pride, it's pride, it's self-exaltation, it's pompous, pompous pride. Let's not miss this. It's an easy sin to miss. It's a praised sin in our world. Our world runs on the fuel of human pride. And by that, I don't mean human ambition, the opposite of laziness and apathy, which is a good thing. It's good to have dreamers and workers and people who take pride in themselves, their families and their work in a proper sense. No, this pride is telling God to go ahead and scoot over because I need to sit down. I'm the boss of my life. Uh, We sort of are born saying that kind of thing as early as we can use words. And we may run through our whole course in life saying, I'm the boss of my life. The pride of Babylon is symbolic in the Bible and in Isaiah's prophecy for the pride of nations in general and people. So God turns her greatest city into a haunt for jackals, he says. And to this day, we have no idea where her greatest city was. He lays low the pride. Turn to chapter 14. Here Isaiah in chapter 14 is talking about Babylon's cruel tyrant leader. Proud nations generally have proud leaders, often tyrants. And what we see here is a composite of every tyrant who would subjugate and murder and slave and deploy his people for the same. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of my God. I will set my throne on, on, on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Sound like Genesis chapter 3? How did trying to take over God's seat go? Verse 15. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let its prisoners go home? And so is the death of every cruel, murderous tyrant over every wicked, murderous people. You may have recognized some of the language here. Some of this is sometimes attributed to as a description of Satan. There's no need to distinguish. The pride, of the cruelty, the pride and cruelty at the heart of Babylon is symbolic of the pride and cruelty in every human and any nation where it's found. And behind it stands the devil himself who feeds it and fuels it and loves it. It is the end of every tyrant who claims the place of God and slaughters his people. And there have been many the last century has seen its share. The judgment of history, by the way, is nothing compared to the judgment of God on the likes of Hitler and Stalin who murdered millions. Here's how it ends for Babylon. Verse 22, I will raise up against them 
and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water and I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Babylon looks strong, her tyrant leader, strong. God will sweep it like a broom with a broom. He'll give it to the hedgehog. Not so strong in the end. Now, before we move on, I need to say here a few things about our present geopolitical context. And this is truly an aside and not at the center of what the sermon is doing. But because Isaiah is so either abused or neglected, I think it's important to do this. The prophets do help us speak about the nations we find ourselves in as Christians and the nations around us today, but we have to be careful. It seems like there are two extremes here with how people use Isaiah and some of the prophets. Either we see our present day in everything on the page or we refuse to see our present day on any page. I recently saw an advertisement for a series on Isaiah on Facebook. It went like this, all caps. What does the future look like for America? Regular text. I will be starting a teaching series from the book of Isaiah this Wednesday. All caps. Shocking revelations. Which extreme would that, would that little advertisement fall to? You can guess. Now, on the one hand, Isaiah is not about America or any present-day nation. We should not observe national tragedy and draw immediately and immediate and specific conclusions about the meaning of these things tied to specific texts in the Old Testament. And Christian leaders have done this on TV. Shake your head uh, and go to your Bible. It is unfortunately that we are re represented sometimes in unbiblical fashion. Some have used an Old Testament prophet like Isaiah to divinely affirm or divinely condemn specific military action. I just don't think it's ever really quite that straightforward. On the other hand, Isaiah is speaking about every nation, which includes America and every nation on earth. Now, America's civil religious history and the wedding of God and country can confuse these things here. We should speak about, not speak about America as God's country, making some kind of direct parallel between Israel and America, or between Babylon and America with a straight line. However, we can appreciate marks of true creaturely humility and recognize marks of creaturely pride in the structures and leaders of nations and recognize that God does see and involve himself in the affairs of this world to bring about judgment on the proud and to bless the work of the humble. Ours really is a better place than a totalitarian state. Winston Churchill once said, and I love this, democracy is the worst form of government imaginable, except for all the rest. I think that's true. Elections are a bit much, aren't they? But isn't it great that national leaders are humbled by the possibility of losing their office lest they listen to their people? It's a good system. It's good enough. Creaturely humility is an explanation for why maybe America and some nations survive and pride is a great explanation for why many have tumbled. And pride may be an explanation for why this one may tumble in, de in a day. No nation is either one or the other. My suggestion as we move from Isaiah to our contemporary world is not to move from Israel to America or from Babylon to America, but to think in terms of humility and pride and God's sovereignty over the world and history. I hope that helps. Back to the text. 
The most important connection we can make this morning is between God's people in Isaiah's day and God's people today and our corresponding temptations of false trust, which sound a whole lot like what we see on the page here. And that's the point of chapter 13. Don't worry about Babylon. Certainly don't hitch your wagon to Babylon. Don't ultimately fear Babylon. Remember God's word, Babylon won't last. Babylon is self-exultant. Don't trust her. She's not great. Neither is any man. But if we're not to fear Babylon or trust in Babylon, how about Egypt? Chapter 19, turn there with me. Egypt, the self-made. Egypt, the self-made. Egypt had three things going for her. She had her gods going for her. She had the Nile River going for her. And she had her wisdom going for her. We'll look at each of those three in turn in this chapter. First, her gods. Egypt was polytheistic with gazillion gods, much like the Hinduism of our day. These gods were made in the image of themselves, invented in the mind and the imagination and the heart of human beings. And all of them together are nothing before God. For when he comes, as verse one says, riding on a swift cloud, the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. They cannot protect anyone. They were made by the hands of the people that are trusting them to protect them. Neither can they preserve the order that the Egyptians prized and sought in their life. The collapse of their gods leads to anarchy followed by the submission of the nation to a cruel leader. Verse two, I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight against each other and against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out and I will confound their counsel and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master and a fierce king will rule over them. I will stir up. I will confound. I will give them over. Ultimately, God stands behind the raging and the wheeling, reeling and the fighting of the nations. Second, her river, her river. The Nile was a big deal, which is an understatement. If you're Egypt, it brought irrigation to what would be otherwise a desert, which brought crops, which brought industry, making possible commerce, military movement, and high culture. Egypt was the Nile. But who has his hand on the spigot? Who controls the flow of water. Well, God does. Verse five, the waters of the sea will be dried up and the river will be dry and parched. And what happens when the water is gone? Verse eight, the fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers of combed flax will be in despair and the weavers of cotton, white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed and all who work for pay will be grieved. As the Nile goes, so goes Egypt's economy. Humans can do all kinds of things with water. Without water, humans can do nothing. We are not as self-made as we think. God has his hand on the spigot. Her gods, her, her river, and now her wisdom. 
How wise are her wise men? How wise are her Oprahs and her Dr. Phil's and her self-help authors? We have plenty of those and you should hear this as commentary on the wisdom of our day as well. Verse 11, the princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. It's okay to look at your TV and say that was stupid. You got it from the Bible right here. Verse 12, where then are your wise men? Let them tell you what they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail palm branch or reed may do. Her wisdom will prove empty. The Lord will confuse them if you entrust yourself to a counselor that is not the Lord's counselor. You trust yourself to the wisdom of the world. You're going to end up anywhere. Drunken in your own vomit on the ground. Now in this case, you're probably thinking, Trent is right, this section is pretty doom-laden. Unremittingly doom-laden, as the commentator said. And that's right. But remember that a thread through this book and the whole Bible is that God brings about salvation through judgment. Two sides of the same coin. He brings about judgment to glorify his justice and in and through it to show mercy. Get this, verses 19 through 25 are about Egypt and Assyria. What you're about to read should blow your mind. I just found this chapter in the last few weeks and I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I, I was not expecting, not expecting what we're about to read. Keep in mind all of the doom that has fallen on Babylon and all the doom on Assyria and all the doom on Egypt. Now verse 19, we've been reading about the day of the Lord when God brings judgment. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt. And Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is why they say this book was stitched together. It wasn't stitched together. This is how the Bible works. That the God brings justice and in the midst of his bringing justice, he is also weaving together a story by which he claims sinners from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And this should be no surprise, even if we weren't expecting it in the middle of chapter 19. Don't miss it. Where is security found? In Babylon, the self-exultant? Nope. Babylon will belong to the hedgehog. Don't hit your wagon to Babylon. In Egypt, the self-made? Nope, she depends on the Nile and God's got his hand on the spigot. How about a third? Jerusalem, the self-reliant. Jerusalem, the self-reliant. Turn with me to chapter 22. 
chapter 22. Of course, you should now realize that my points are sort of giveaways as to the answer. No, we will not trust in Jerusalem the self-reliant. Chapter 22 opens up as an oracle or an address concerning the valley of vision. It's hard to see in a valley, and Israel can't see straight or well. She should. She has God's word. She has God's covenant promises that if she looks to him, looks to him for protection, he will protect her. Has he not done that? Jericho. They followed his instructions to a T, which made no sense, and they were safe. David and Goliath entrusted him, David entrusted himself to the Lord, and he was safe. The Exodus. This is the story of Israel's history. Will she look to him? Chapter 22 opens up with Jerusalem in raving, joyous cheers on rooftops for victory militarily. But they can't see their own mortality. They're short-sighted. Their victory was with their weapons and in looking to their walls and ingenuity. And now in verse 4, he tells of a time when they will be put down. God says, look away from me. Let, my, let me weep bitter tears. Jerusalem will be put down by an enemy. And God will weep over his people. What's wrong in the first place with shouting and rejoicing in a military victory? In verse 15, we get a, we hear that we look in verse 8 with me. In that day, you look to the weapons of the house of the forest. Observe here the seeing language. You looked to the weapons and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool Verse 10, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for water of the pool, but you did not look to him, look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. We trust God completely for salvation and what, what Israel was given in her physical earthly world circumstances militarily is really our situation spiritually with unseen forces and death as our enemy. We entrust ourselves wholly to the Lord because we have nothing against which to fortify ourselves against the real enemy. Israel was not trusting God. They trusted brick walls more than God. To illustrate the problem at the heart of Israel's nation, uh, Isaiah gives us an example of a man, a national leader. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, come to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household and say to him, what have you to do here? Uh, and whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling place for yourself on the rock. This guy was uh, a steward. He was like the prime minister of great influence and strength and military strength. Enamored with himself, he gives great care to his legacy. Very concerned with how he'll be remembered at death giving great care to his tomb to make sure that his name is remembered. And why? Because his life is bound up in this world. It's all he's got. He is concerned about the memory that he leaves. He is not thinking on the Lord. And see where an orientation of self-reliance in this life ultimately leaves to a hoarding of legacy. And maybe you've had a very accomplished life. Maybe there's a lot to leave. You won't be remembered in time. And it won't matter when you die anyways. Whether you've got a legacy or not, this guy had a lot to leave. How does it go for him? Look at verse 17. 
Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and will whirl you around and around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land, middle of nowhere. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. Self-infatuation, self-reliance. We have to be very careful about this. Pastors have to be careful about this. You have to be careful about this in the context of your neighborhood and workplace and life, not to make much of yourself. Churches have to be careful of this. Empire building is something that goes on in church world. You are not a means to your leader's ends here in growing. All of us together are family preaching the gospel, going and sending and praying and preaching and God does what he will. If a celebrity pastor is a celebrity on account of his preaching the word and the response that it brings, praise God for the soil that would hear it and listen. But if a celebrity pastor is a celebrity because of his words and the response that his words have brought, doom. In contrast, there is another man named Eliakim. He's exactly the opposite. He's the opposite of Ahaz, who sat on David's throne and failed. This guy trusts the Lord, and uh, he's a little bit of a hint as to what may come in the future. There is hope from within Israel. Israel will have a faithful king. Eliakim, who we learn about next, we won't read about, isn't the Messiah, but he's a taste of faithfulness to come. Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, though, they trusted in the same things as everyone else. And they feared the nations and not the Lord. So where is security found? Where is security found? Here's a thought. How about the one who can give the world's superpower to the hedgehog? How about the one who can dry up the water source for the world's greatest economy? How about the one who can whirl and whirl and whirl and fling a nation's greatest military leader how about God the sovereign Lord God the sovereign Lord turn with me to chapter 24 through 27 it doesn't all fit on one page and by the way I'm going to be moving all over the place so you'll be there and you can look down if you want from moment to moment I'll be in different places synthesizing this for you in hopefully a straightforward way it might be helpful just to listen God of the sovereign Lord, Lord of history and of the world, space and time, space, 24 verse 1, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, time, verse 25, 1, oh, the Lord, oh, Lord, you have done wonderful things, plans formed from old, faithful, and sure, two big areas of jurisdiction, the world and history, space and time. Hard to think of anything that doesn't fit underneath the umbrella categories of space and time. We should probably hitch our wagon to him. Probably a safe bet. Remember Isaiah's vision of two cities? Each of the five major sections in this book are helping to show the contrast between these two cities. Each section themselves showing the contrast. One city finds its answer in security Ultimately, in humanity, self-exaltation, self-creation, self-reliance, and the other finds its security in the Lord. 24 through 27 here at the end of the section are something like a grand finale of fireworks extolling the glorious 
greatness of the sovereignty of God in judgment and in salvation. Here's a look into the future for the first city, the city of man. This whole section is way forward looking. A kind of summary of all we've read. 24 verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for a lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered to ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Why is this city brought so low? The lofty city he lays low and casts it to the dust. It corresponds with how high she exalted herself. Do not fear a nation of great size and power and wealth. He takes the song out of their mouth, verse 8 of chapter 24. The tambourines are stilled and the noise of the jubilant has ceased. No matter how happy and how raving everything looks, if that's where all the action is, the Lord isn't there. The singing will stop in time. And if you like the tambourine, no tambourines there. No tambourines. But thankfully, if you don't like that city, you're willing to trust the Lord, doesn't have to be your home. There is another option. If you're willing to believe God's word against what appears like real human and lasting strength in this life, then there's safety for you. There's a very different future. There's a different Jerusalem. Listen to its song. Look at, it wa- look at its walls in 26.1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. What are the walls made of in this city? God's salvation is what they're made of. The gates aren't battered to ruins. They're built for righteousness. And this is important. Listen to who gets in this city because we should want to know that. Verse two of 26, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust, trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. That's a good reason to trust. He's not just a rock, he's an everlasting rock. He's not just strong, he's forever strong. And this is justification by faith. You may have heard of that doctrine. It comes right out of the Bible, clearly out of the New Testament, clearly out of the Old Testament. We are righteous on account of of the righteousness that God gives those who come to him in faith. Who gets into the city? Who can go through the gates? The righteous. That's who. Who's righteous? Those who entrust themselves to God because God is the only one who can provide ultimate safety. And the people who go through these gates, they sing. And they sing crazy, crazy stuff like this. Verse 19 of chapter 26. It's crazy. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. It's singing about resurrection from the dead. And right there's the clearest passage in the Old Testament. Clearest passage in your Old Testament about resurrection from the dead right there in the middle of this crazy long 
15-chapter stretch of doom, ending with some bright hope here. A little more descriptive, a little more description would be helpful of what it's like after the resurrection of the dead. Ever been to a party? Food, people, laughter, singing, fun. Hope it doesn't end. In Bible speak, we call that a feast. We've sung about a feast this morning. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, which is Jerusalem, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that's spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. You want to believe those promises. You need a God of the world and history if he's going to keep those promises and he will. We have, we are, our teams win the Super Bowl and we throw parties and are happy and it means nothing. I don't like football, it's easier for me to say. It means nothing. God swallows up death so that death is gone forever. That's good news. That's victory. That calls for a feast of wine, well-aged wine, well-aged wine, well-refined, good food, lots of meat. Perception is not always reality. The first city may be large, wealthy, powerful, and resourceful, but not forever. Where our trust is in ourselves, in humankind, in man, our singing will stop. But the, the second city may be small, threatened, scorned, looked down upon, but not forever. Where our trust is in God and his word, our singing will burst and will not stop. So the question for you this morning is what city you belong to? Who are you trusting? The one who is in charge of space and time? Try to think of something that worries you. Does it fall under the umbrella categories of space and time? Try to think of someone that intimidates you. Are they inside space and time? Try to think of a national or global catastrophe that horrifies you. Is it inside space and time? Now, living where we live and when we live, we don't often think of nations and cruel dictators and the end of our life the hands of the state, but many Christians, perhaps most Christians in most places for most of time have considered this. Think of what might worry or intimidate or horrify you if you lived in the Middle East with ISIS closing in on your village because there are Christians in the Middle East with ISIS closing in on their village, children in tow. Or in China when your house church is discovered or in North Korea, when you could be found out as a Christian and your whole family and friends hauled off, likely to die, as an example. Is all of that inside space and time? Because we're going to need a God who's over the world and history if we're going to believe his promise that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even death, not even persecution, no power. So the question for you is, are you on the right side of the one who is over the world in history. Are you on the right side of the one? Yes, there is one true and living God and the God of the Bible is him. And he is the only place where security may be found. He is faithful. Humans are not faithful. You are not faithful. And it doesn't look like it now. After all, our symbol uh, is a pretty 
Big symbol of failure, a cross. A cross is, the event of a cross is a failure. It's a death. Uh, Jesus, our, our Savior, was crucified. That's our symbol. If it doesn't appear that we'll be singing in the end, we sure will. For he is not still on his cross. He was put in a grave and then he was raised from the dead and now he's seated at the Father's right hand. In time, we will sing. And we sing now looking forward to the feast that we'll enjoy with him. Make sure you're on the right side of the God of the world of history. Without reservation, bank your eternity on his crazy promise of salvation from death and an eternal feast through a crucified man from Jerusalem on a cross. Preview for next week. All these great promises that God is making here, they're all tied to a man. They're all tied to a king. They're all tied to a king that will sit on David's throne. And last week we saw how Ahaz fared. Isaiah went to him, made a promise from God. Ahaz wasn't interested, hooked up with Assyria, and look where that got Israel. But God promises that the judgment they're under won't last forever. And now they've had 15 chapters of tutoring on the absolute sovereignty of God. When things open up next week, We'll have another story of another king and we'll see how he does. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are the one true and living God, the God of the world and history, the God of space and time. You stand behind the nations. You stand behind everything that happens on the earth and you're working out a plan to bring glory to yourself and judgment and in salvation. We thank you for the offer of salvation and the promise and the hope of a great feast and entrust ourselves to the king who is Jesus who sits on David's throne after having been crucified for the sins of his people. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.